Alrighty, well this year I'd like for us to continue working our way through Acts and 1 Corinthians as well as the book of Revelation. I also want to take some time to talk about pursuing our happiness in God, but periodically I want to also directly address some cultural issues in light of the fact that I think the church in our country in general is experiencing some real challenges in these areas. And today I want to talk about the issue of abortion. Um, and to help us think through it um, biblically as well as in other ways. Whenever we talk about a sensitive topic like this, it's important to keep three things in mind. Um, Compassion is one of those things that we need to realize that we need compassion for those who are involved in things like abortion and other issues, the LGBTQ issue and, and other issues. We need compassion for people that are caught up in these things. And for some people, uh, it is accurate, I think, to say they know not what they do. It's also important, secondly, to be firm in our own convictions. That having compassion and being able to understand the difficulties of a situation does not mean that there isn't any right or wrong that we need to stand for. And so we need to be strong in our conviction about what is right and what is wrong, and to argue that Doing something wrong never makes something else right. And then thirdly, we need to communicate the gospel. We need to communicate that there's hope, that there's good news, no matter what sin it is that people are dealing with. We need to let people know that there is an able and willing Savior in Jesus. And so some of us may say uh, this, this issue of abortion may seem a little distant for various reasons. Others of us may... Uh, have more of a vested interest in the topic for various reasons, whether it's our own experience to one degree or another or having people we know that have experienced this one way or another. And so I'm hoping that God will use this to remind us of things we need to be reminded of and maybe equip us in ways that we need to be equipped to uh, to deal with any temptations in our own life or in the lives of others in our lives and to minister and to love. And obviously... Uh, We want to love God, and part of loving God is understanding what his concerns are and having those same concerns. And we want to love people, which means we want to understand um, these kinds of issues and to know how to love our neighbor, the people who are close to us that are dealing with these kinds of things. But one of the challenges in this area, like in many areas, is the issue of talking past each other. I heard a guy just the other day talk about a discussion that he had with his six-year-old daughter in which the six-year-old daughter came up to him and said, Dad, what does a one-two smell like? And the dad thought a minute and said, one-two, one-two, that's numbers. And he said, well, honey, uh, numbers don't have smell. And evidently, his four-year-old daughter, hearing this conversation as it kind of went back and forth a little bit, came up and said, no, Dad, you look like a monkey and you smell like one, two. What does a one, two smell like? So many times we don't realize that we're talking past people because we don't understand what people are really saying. Uh, we hear them say one, two, we think numbers and they're talking about something different. And so that's why it's helpful to really think through these issues. If we really want to love people, We need to really understand the issues ourselves and try to understand where they're coming from 
as well. In Proverbs 13, 34, it says, Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. And that certainly applies to the issue of abortion. Uh, Someone said, I think several people have said this in different ways, how a society treats its most vulnerable is always the measure of its humanity. And there's nothing more vulnerable than a baby in the womb. So I want us to think about that. Obviously, right now, because of just celebrating um, the anniversary of Roe versus Wade, there's a lot of talk about abortion, and there's a lot of activity with regard to abortion because of the Dobbs case and the overturning of Roe versus Wade. Just last weekend, there was the March for Life. And at the March for Life, uh, Coach Tony Dungy, an NFL coach, um, was criticized for speaking at the March for Life. And some would say, I'm done with Dungy because of his stance in uh, opposition to uh, abortion. Vice President uh, Harris spoke on that as well, on the anniversary of Roe versus Wade. And, and a lot of people took notice of the fact that she appealed to the Declaration of Independence and she appealed to the right to liberty and the pursuit of happiness and either intentionally or, or otherwise left out the right to life. And that's what the Declaration says, the right to life liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Since the Dobbs decision, there have been attacks on crisis pregnancy centers, which the DOJ hasn't seemed to aggressively pursue uh, those who've done that, at least as far as, at least initially. And then you may have heard of the um, person in the UK that was recently arrested for praying silently near a closed abortion clinic. Because in the UK, there's a censorship zone where you cannot get close to an abortion clinic and do anything that expresses disapproval of abortion, even if you do it silently. It's incredible. It's incredible uh, what's going on with regard to this issue. But you might say, well, aren't you preaching to the choir? You know, most of us here would say, if not all of us would say, Of course we disagree with abortion. Well, in general, the reality is that there are a lot of people uh, in our country that claim to be Roman Catholic or mainline Protestant or evangelical that are still having abortions. And so we need to think about it. And we also need to realize that in our last election for president, there were evangelicals that were arguing or Christians that were arguing that a person's stance on abortion should not make a difference in whether or not you vote for them or not, which is an interesting thing. And the question is whether or not that is a legitimate Christian position to take. And so we have a lot, I think, that uh, highlights the fact that in the church in general in this country, we really need to think through the abortion issue. I, I talked to the director of Horizon um, pregnancy center in Huntington Beach and she said at this point 70% of abortions are now uh, through the abortion pill. People are just using the the pill to do it. Um, Obviously the latest figures that I've seen since Roe v. Wade 63 million, more than 63 million babies have been aborted. That's a huge number. 
a huge number. And so what I'd like for us to do is to think about this this morning, uh, that we might um, have a heart, have God's heart with regard to it, and to seek to love people in this situation. So the first thing I'd like to do um, is to have us turn to Genesis chapter 6, if you would. Turn to Genesis chapter 6. And I just want to make some brief points uh, to have us think about this. Obviously, there's so much that could be said about this topic, but I just want us to think about some things from the Word of God as well as uh, other ways that um, believers are trying to address this issue. Uh, But the first point is that I think from the very beginning, uh, we need to understand that man cannot attack God directly. So what does he do? He attacks the image of God in man. And I think we can see this. You may have noticed uh, people doing similar things in if they get angry at someone, uh, if they feel like someone has done something horrible to them, they might look at their picture and rip it up. They might may not do anything to that person directly, but they do something indirectly. And the same thing happens when we attack people. We're indirectly attacking God. It's, I think that's what was happening with Cain and Abel. Uh, a few chapters earlier, we have the account of Cain and Abel where Cain brings an offering to God, Abel brings an offering to God, God receives Abel's offering and does not receive Cain's offering, and Cain is angry. Who's he angry at? Well, he's angry at God, for sure, but that anger also transfers to Abel, and he ends up murdering Abel. And so what I'd like to help us to see is I think the same kind of thing is going on with regard to what we see happening with regard to the flood. And uh, Genesis 6, uh, verse 5, it says, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and he was grieved in his heart. One of the things that's interesting to me is that the Lord Jesus said, things will be similar uh, at the end of time before he comes back, just like they were in the days of Noah before the flood. And so we see that the Lord says the wickedness of man was great. And then if you look down to verse 11, in that same chapter it says, now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God and the earth was filled with violence. And then in verse 13, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence because of them. And so you have this picture of great wickedness and great violence. And then if you look um, in chapter 9, at the very beginning in verse 1, this is after the flood, after Noah and his wife and his sons and, and their wives have been saved. They leave the ark, and it says in Genesis 9, 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Then it goes on from there, and then in verse 6 it says, God tells them, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. What's interesting to me as you think about the, the whole account of the flood is that before the flood it says uh, men's hearts were filled with evil thoughts, and the world was filled with violence. 
So there was a heart problem that translated into action problems. And then after the flood, you've got God telling Noah and his sons and their wives to do exactly what he told Adam and Eve, uh, be fruitful and multiply. And then he says, but if someone kills someone else, they are to be killed. And then he repeats, be fruitful and multiply. So the context of being fruitful and multiplying, that command is the command not to overlook and downplay people killing each other. It's contrary to it. And the whole point that is made is that we should not kill each other because we are all made in the image of God. Therefore, to attack someone made in the image of God is to attack God. So there's a sense in which he's addressing the situation before the flood by telling them these things after the flood. And so we need to see that the issue of abortion is an issue, I believe, ultimately attacking God in the attack on those made in the image of God. That's why the question, what is the unborn is so important. And if you watch things by Stand to Reason, which is a great resource, um, there's a, a recent uh, six-part, I think, series made by Alan Sh- uh, Shlomon, uh, and that I'll quote from as I go through this, uh, that's really helpful in thinking through how to talk about the issue of abortion. And he would say the key question is, what is the unborn? And he uses the illustration, if your six-year-old son came up behind you while you're washing dishes and said or asked, uh, can I kill this? I don't think you would simply say yes without turning around and finding out what this is. If it's a spider, you might say yes. If it's a neighborhood dog or cat, you'd probably say no. And if it's his little sister, you definitely would say no. And so it matters what this is, whether or not killing it is going to be something that we should or should not approve of. And so the unborn is a human being made in the image of God that should be protected and provided for. Why? To honor God, most importantly, because it's we are made in the image of God and what we do to each other as those being made in the image of God is ultimately an issue of honor to God. The second thing is that pregnancy is the beginning of life in the womb. If you would turn to Psalm 139, using some scriptures that I'm sure are very familiar to you, just to remind us of these things and to encourage us to be in prayer about these things and engaged in whatever way God might lead us to be engaged in light of the fact that these, this issue is ramping up in our country. People are becoming more and more hostile about this issue, and we need to be firm in our conviction about it. Um, pregnancy is the beginning of life in the womb, just like dawn is the beginning of daylight. It isn't fully daylight, but it is still daylight. It's just the beginning of daylight. It's, Like in Song of Solomon 6, verse 10, it says, Who is this that grows like the dawn? And so when we think about life in the womb, uh, we need to think about it in that respect. 
In Psalm 139, verse 13, it says, For you formed my inward parts, you wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret, and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance, and in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there was not one of them. And so the point of this passage is what happens in the womb is a work of God. What happens in the womb may be unseen to man, but it's seen to God. In that day and time, they couldn't see what was going on in the womb like we can today. The context for the comment about my days have been ordained for you is the context of the days of the weaving of this baby in the womb. The days of weaving have been ordained by God. And the question is, who are we to slap God's hand when he's at work weaving a human being made in his image in the womb? There's a lot of scriptures we can look at, which we don't have time to this morning. But when we think about what the Bible says in various ways or the implications of what the Bible says, we can say that God views pregnancy this way, that pregnancy is a blessing, that pregnancy is not merely a human choice. It involves human choice, but it's not merely a human choice. It's a divine choice. It's not an accident. It's not a tragedy. It's not a threat to over you know population. It's not a threat to the earth. Even though even Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, back when Roe was um, approved, said she felt like a lot of the issue revolved around the argument that we have to prevent the overpopulation of the world. Pregnancy is not simply a consequence of sin. Sin might be involved, but it's not simply a consequence of sin. It's a work of God from the beginning. It involves a human being from the beginning. And like everything else in life, it calls us to trust God and love people. So when I become, or when someone becomes pregnant, or my wife becomes pregnant, or whatever, uh, whatever the circumstances of the pregnancy coming to pass, it's a call to trust God at that point and in light of that, and to love at that point and in light of that. So we need to see pregnancy as the beginning of life in the womb from conception. And the Bible, I think, argues that way. And even science would confirm that. Uh, The science of embryology would say that the unborn is living, distinct from the mother, and truly human. Uh, It's living because it grows, it responds to stimuli, and it metabolizes nutrients. It's distinct because it has its own unique fingerprints, its own unique DNA, its own organs. In fact, the circulatory system is distinct from the mother's circulatory system. The blood does not mix together. And uh, a human being can actually be uh, created outside a woman's body. It happens in the lab, right? And then it can be implanted back in the mother's body. The unborn is human. It has a human DNA. If you were to take a tissue sample of a baby in the womb, it would have a human DNA. And the principle of biogenesis, living things reproduce after their own kind. And if you listen to people that are 
involved in science and medicine like uh, this professor at Brown University. He said, human embryos and human fetuses are human beings, each with their own genetic DNA. Or another one at Mayo Clinic who said, when fertilization is complete, a unique genetic human entity exists. So from the very beginning of conception in the womb, um, the baby is a human being made in the image of God, and we must honor God by protecting and providing for babies in the womb. Now, thirdly, abortion is the taking of a life in the womb. If you would, look at Exodus 21. Exodus 21. Verse 22, the taking of, of a life in the womb can be compared to uh, the taking of the life of someone while they're sleeping and in bed. There's a, a story in 2 Samuel 4 where people kill uh, one of the sons of Saul while he's in bed. And they come to David and they think David's going to praise them for taking out his enemy. And what he says is, how much more when wicked men have killed a righteous man in his own house on his bed, shall I not now require his blood from your hand and destroy you from the earth? And so David could say, what a horrible thing for you to do, to take someone's life in what they would consider one of their most secure, restful places. And that certainly applies to the womb of a mother. In Exodus 21, verse 22, it says, If men struggle with each other and strike a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet there is no injury, she shall surely be fined as the woman's husband may demand of him, and he shall pay as the judges decide. But if there is any further injury, then you shall appoint as a penalty life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Now, I've heard people say that this passage isn't talking about uh, injury to the baby. It's just talking about two men fighting and they strike a woman and she gets injured. Well, if that's true, then why reference women who are pregnant? If it's not about the baby at all, then there's no reason to even mention women who are preg- pregnant, just all women, whether they're pregnant or not. But that's not what the scripture does. It tells us that an important part of the picture is that she is pregnant and that if, they're, if the baby, uh, after the woman's struck because of the men fighting, if the baby is born, but there's no injury to the baby and no injury to the woman, then there can still be a fine for what took place. But if the woman's injured or the baby is injured, either one, um, there should be a just penalty. The whole idea of an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth, and all that sort of thing isn't strictly always the idea, okay, you knocked out my eye, I'll knock out your eye, or that kind of thing. But it's a picture of a just uh, consequence for uh, what happened, uh, that the punishment should fit the crime. And the implication is, If the baby dies, then the person who caused the death ought to die too. Now, obviously, there are a lot of issues with regard to how that would apply today. But my point right here is simply to say, 
it highlights the fact that God sees the human being in the womb as uh, equal in terms of needing the same justice that a human being outside the womb should get. That there's, there's no difference from God's perspective on the fact that that baby is in the womb or outside the womb. That both are to receive the same kind of protection, provision, and even justice. And so it says something about how God looks at the issue of taking life in the womb. And so let me just briefly say, I think uh, from what the Bible says overall, we can say that abortion is a problem, not a solution. For a lot of people, it seems to be a solution. But the Bible doesn't say it's a solution. The Bible would say the, inten- the taking, and certainly the intentional taking of life in the womb is killing, or what we would call murder. And unfortunately, even though this might not be the case in every situation, it is often for the sake of money. Planned Parenthood makes a lot of money off these things. It's uh, many times the result of just immorality, wanting to be able to be free, to be uh, sexually active and have no consequence. Uh, It can be motivated by just wanting to be uh, like men and having not having that consequence or wanting the independence to live my life the, the way I want to do it and do what I want to do and not be burdened with a child. Um, another aspect of this, if you look at Margaret Sanger and Planned Parenthood and some of her ideas, which she was uh, the founder of Planned Parenthood, she is known to have said things and supported things that would say that um, there are people that are unfit to live, the feeble, the disabled, uh, black people, and others. And she called them garden weeds that should be ripped out. And so we need to understand that that abortion is also an attack on what people would consider um, people who aren't worthy to live, people that we don't consider human. And that's a big part of the issue is how do we look at uh, babies in the womb? Now, abortion, we could say, is never necessary to save the life of the mother in a normal pregnancy. There are other options, C-sections or whatever. Uh, Now, an ectopic pregnancy, um, in that kind of situation, as I understand it, the baby's not going to live anyway. And so something might need to be done to save the life of the mother. But that's not a normal pregnancy. That, that's something else going on there. And so abortion is not the only option. There's adoption. Even if you're not in a position to care for the child, there is still uh, other options. And the reality is abortion is traumatic, not therapeutic. People don't feel typically better, although they might argue in some ways they might feel better. It tends to be a very traumatic experience for the woman. And it's not natural because the Bible says it's natural for women to want to protect their children, not to take the life of their children. It's very unnatural. And the Bible talks in ways, and we'll talk more about this in a minute, that it's actually a kind of child sacrifice for whatever we're worshiping or or trying to uh, pursue. But it's very, very important to understand that If all these things are true, and I believe they are, it does not mean that 
Abortion is the unpardonable sin. It's not the unpardonable sin. And that's where communicating the gospel comes in to say that we're all sinners. We all have sin that's worthy of hell. And there is forgiveness in Jesus. There is um, there's freedom in Jesus to live differently and to deal with all of our sin, whatever it may be. And so we need to see abortion for what it is. We can't downplay it. We can't water it down. That's why it's helpful to have uh, means by which women can see what's actually in their womb before they make that decision. That's a strategy of many crisis pregnancy centers. Uh, we need to see it for what it is. And, and thinking about what is in the womb is one of the reasons why Stand for Reason will use a, a strategy that they call trot out the toddler. And uh, they would ask the question at some point after listening to someone who's arguing for abortion, they would ask the question, would your justification for abortion also justify killing a two-year-old toddler? And obviously one of the you know, opposition uh, statements to that would be, but that's different. Well, the point of bringing up this kind of question is to say, there are some differences, obviously, but it's not fundamentally different that the two issues are fundamentally the same. And, and the reason uh, is um, highlighted in the kinds of questions in light of the kinds of things will, that people argue. Uh, for instance, they will ask questions like, is it permissible to kill a two-year-old toddler because we choose to do so, which is the right to choose? Is it permissible to kill a two-year-old toddler because we do it in the privacy of our own home, which is the privacy argument? Is it permissible to kill a two-year-old toddler because they are unwanted or because you can't afford to feed them or because they have Down syndrome or because they are the result of rape or because they are the result of incest? And most people would say, no, it's not okay. The point is to say, yes, there are differences between the situation with a toddler and with a baby in the womb, but they're not fundamentally different. There are some fundamental connections there and as difficult and heartbreaking as these kinds of circumstances may be, especially when you're talking about rape and incest and, and uh, even the issues of poverty and all kinds of things, um, those are attendant issues. Those are issues that surround the fundamental question of what is the unborn? And therefore, what should be our response? And if the unborn indeed is a human being made in the image of God, then we need to uh, look at how we deal with those challenges in a different way. And abortion, we should see, is a sin. It's an act of violence that is a problem and creates more problems. It's, a, it's not a morally sound solution. Well, finally, let's come to the last point here. Um, when we dehumanize, we can justify in humanity. If you would look at Ezekiel 16, Ezekiel chapter 16. This kind of broads the whole issue. It, it, in, a, in a way, it kind of highlights the fact that once we fall into this kind of thinking, we open the door to all kinds of things. And that's why it's not the issue of abortion is obviously dangerous for the unborn in the womb, but it's also dangerous for society in light of other things that can be fostered in light of it as well. 
So if we dehumanize someone, we can justify inhumanity to them. Just like if we look at someone as a monster. That guy's a monster. Well, it's a lot easier to attack a monster than to attack someone that we would consider a human just like us. That's why in the story about the Jewish man who went to see the trial of Adolf Eichmann, went into the courtroom and looked at him, Adolf Eichmann, who was involved in the Holocaust and the killing of millions of Jews, he expected to see a monster that he could say, that man deserves to die, or that monster deserves to die. But he walked in and he collapsed in tears because he said, I realized that he was just like me. He wasn't a monster. He was just a human being just like me. And so it's very easy uh, to do that sort of thing. When you think about uh, the Lord Jesus and what he went through, if you look at uh, his life and his ministry, at times uh, it says in John 10, many of them were saying he has a demon and is insane. It's easier to crucify someone that you say has a demon and is insane, is somehow not really human and worthy of life. In Ezekiel 16, verses 15 through 22, uh, uh, the Lord is talking about uh, the sin of Israel. And he's talking about it with the picture of spiritual adultery. He's talking about what they're, they're doing in terms of their worship, the worship of idols, in light of the, the idea of adultery. And he talks about how they're using um, his gold and his silver and his oil and his incense and his bread and his children to honor these other gods. And so it says in verse 20, Moreover, you took your sons and daughters whom you had borne to me and sacrificed them to idols to be devoured. Then he asked this important question, Were your harlotries so small a matter. Think about that. He's saying, um, you might argue, what's the big deal? So we're worshiping other gods. Well, the fact that you're killing your own children highlights the fact that idolatry is a terrible thing because your heart idolatry is translating into you killing your own children. So your harlotries are not a small matter. Verse 21, it says, You slaughtered my children and offered them up to idols by causing them to pass through the fire. Then he says in verse 22, Besides all your abominations and harlotries. The abominations is the killing of their own children. The harlotry is their worship of, of other gods. And the point I'm making is that the seriousness of their worship of other gods is highlighted by what they will do in honor of those gods they will take the life of their own children. And so what we worship or who we worship will determine the kind of sacrifices we make and the kinds of sins we commit. Ultimately, Romans 1 tells us that everything flows out of our worship. It's what we're worshiping, what we're looking to for help and for happiness that results in what we do. So that abortion is a kind of child sacrifice. 
because of what people are pursuing, what they're worshiping, what they're valuing more than God and what God has given. And this kind of child sacrifice usually requires some kind of dehumanizing. That's why the debate has so often revolved around what is the unborn. So my point here in, in wrapping this up is to say we need to see that the kinds of arguments that are being used for abortion can be applied to justify all kinds of murder. Um, there's what is called SLED arguments for abortion, S-L-E-D. Um, the pro-life position is this. Premise one, it is wrong to kill innocent human beings. Premise two, abortion kills an innocent human being. Conclusion, therefore, abortion is wrong. The pro-choice position alters that by saying premise one is it is wrong to kill innocent human persons. They change from human beings to human persons. Premise two, abortion kills an innocent human being, but not a person. Conclusion, therefore, abortion is not wrong. So there's an argument that if I say that the unborn is a human being, like we've been arguing up to this point, that's not the end of the discussion because they would say it might be a human being, but it's not a human person. And they will argue for that by saying the difference between a human being and a human person is based on four things, S-L-E-D. The first thing is size, the second thing is level of development. The third thing is environment. And the fourth thing is degree of dependency. And so the argument is um, they're so small, they're, they're not a real human person, especially if we can't even see them from the very beginning because they're so small with our naked eye. But we can ask the question, why does being smaller than other humans disqualify you from being a person or make you less valuable are two-year-olds less human or less valuable because they're not as big as adults or they'll argue that because of the level of development they're they're not fully developed they're just the dawn they're not the not, not the full daylight well the question is why does being less developed than other humans disqualify you from being a person or make you less valuable is a baby that's born premature and doesn't have everything fully developed yet is it less valuable? Is it not a human being? Less of a human because of that? They'll argue that because of the environment, because it's in the womb instead of outside of the womb. Well, does one's location disqualify you from being a person or make you less valuable? You know, there's the argument that you ought to have abortion up to the very point of giving birth. Does that mean that a baby just before birth can be killed because it's six inches away from being outside of the womb? That's the argument. Then finally, they'll say degree of dependency because the baby's dependent on the mother. Well, why does being, being dependent on another human being disqualify you from being a person or make you less valuable? A six-month-old or a three-month-old or a two-month-old a uh, born child is very dependent. Does that make them inhuman? Does that make them less valuable? No, it doesn't. And so ultimately, 
is an is an argument based on certain characteristics that is really an unjust kind of discrimination. And it's the same kind of thing that happened in the South with the slavery of blacks. It's the same kind of thing that happened in the Holocaust with the putting to death of the Jews. The point is we naturally dehumanize those we treat inhumanely. It's almost like we have to. In order to quell our own conscience, we have to dehumanize those we treat inhumanely. And if we can dehumanize life in the womb, we can dehumanize life outside the womb. That's what happened with the Jews in the Holocaust. That's what happened with slavery in the South. And as as someone has said, a very famous quote, uh, first they came for the socialists and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. Then they came for me and there was no one left to speak for me. The idea being that we can argue that certain people aren't truly human, therefore they're not worthy of being treated like humans, protected and provided for. And where does that stop? Where does it stop? It just doesn't stop because of the wickedness of sinful hearts. Well, let me conclude with just some encouragements for us. Whatever the challenges of being a parent, and anyone who's ever been a parent will say parenting is challenging. There's no doubt about that. But still, it doesn't deny the truth of Psalm 127, verse 3. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. There's no qualification on that. It doesn't say anything about how that uh, child was conceived or the circumstances in which that child was born. So what should we do? We should affirm children, all children, as a blessing. We should pray for our leaders, leaders of our country and our states, in light of the fact that now each state is trying to decide what they're going to do. We need to pray for the spread of the gospel, because ultimately it's a heart issue. It's a heart issue. It's how we look at life. It's how we look at these issues. It's how we determine whether or not, is there really a God? Uh, Is it really right and wrong? Uh, Is there really a standard? Is there life after death? Does it really matter uh, whether or not I live to please God or not? And so the gospel is crucial. We should oppose abortion with loving and moral actions. There's no place for trying to kill abortion providers or or hurting people, anything like that. we should oppose politicians who favor abortion. We should oppose politicians who favor abortion. I'll say more about that in a minute. We should encourage adoption. We should support crisis pregnancy centers. We should offer help to those who need help in this area and offer hope to those who need pardon. There's this quote from John Piper that I think is really helpful, especially with regard to what I just mentioned about the issue of Uh, How do we respond when there is a politician who's in favor of abortion? Like I mentioned earlier in this last presidential election, there were Christians who were arguing that they were going to support the Democratic Party, which has an official stance on abortion, and support President Biden, who is in favor of abortion, believing that we should not be one-issue voters. There are other things that are important, too, besides... um, 
abortion, which is true. So how do we think about that? Well, let me read this quote. John Piper says, No endorsement of any single issue qualifies a person to hold public office, which means even if you support abortion, or excuse me, are against abortion, doesn't mean we should just automatically vote for them. Being pro-life does not make a person a good governor, mayor, or president. But there are numerous single issues that disqualify a person from public office. So you can be pro-life and still not be someone we should vote for. But should you, if you're pro-abortion, should that be something that isn't important? He says there are issues that should disqualify people from public office in the opinion of Christians. For example, any candidate who endorsed bribery as a form of government efficiency would be disqualified no matter what his party or platform was. Or a person who endorsed corporate fraud, say under 50 million, would be disqualified no matter what else he endorsed. Or a person who said that no black people could hold office. On that single issue alone, he would be unfit for office. Or a person who said that rape is only a misdemeanor. That single issue would end his political career, or should. These examples could go on and on. Everybody knows a single issue that, for them, would disqualify a candidate for office. It's the same with marriage. No one, no one quality makes a good wife or husband, but some qualities would make a person unacceptable. For example, back when I was thinking about getting married, not liking cats would not have disqualified a woman as my wife, but not liking people would. Drinking coffee would not, but drinking whiskey would. For him, obviously. Um, Maybe not for everyone, especially in reform circles. You never know about that. Um, Kissing dogs wouldn't, but kissing the mailman would, and so on. Being a single-issue fiancé does not mean that only one issue matters. It means that some issues may matter enough to break off the relationship. So it is with politics. You have to decide what those issues are for you. What do you think disqualifies a person from holding public office? I believe that the endorsement of the right to kill unborn children disqualifies a person from any position of public office. It's simply the same as saying that the endorsement of racism, fraud, or bribery would disqualify him, except that child killing is more serious than those. And I fully agree with that position. So we need to oppose abortion in light of what it is, the murder of a human being in the image of God. But we need to offer to those involved in abortions, women as well as men and others, we need to offer them the good news of forgiveness through another murder. We would say abortion is murder. How do you be delivered from that sin? Through another murder. What murder am I talking about? The murder of the Son of God. The murder of the Son of God, Jesus, in our place. Uh, we sang this morning about um, how God responds and saves the ungodly. It says in Romans 4, 5, But to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. Then in Romans 5, 6, For while we were still helpless, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. We have a message as Christians. Abortion is a sin, but it's not the unpardonable sin. And all of us are sinners 
because all of us have sinned in such a way that we deserve hell. But Jesus is an able and willing Savior for real sinners, not just imaginary sinners. And that's the good news we have to share. So let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that that is true, that that we need to be compassionate for other sinners because we're sinners just like they are. And we all have sinned in such a way that we deserve hell. We all have sinned and bear the consequences of those sins to one degree or another. Help us to have compassion. Help us also to have conviction. Conviction of what is right and what is wrong in light of what your word says. And indeed, in this case, in light of what science confirms, help us to be strong in our conviction and not to justify what is wrong as if it could be a solution in any way, shape, or form. <clears throat> and we pray that you'd help us to communicate the gospel and all of it, uh, to communicate that Jesus is an able and willing Savior for sinners. Father, we thank you for the hope that we have in Christ. We thank you that your word tells us what is right and wrong and helps us to see how to love people. And we pray that you would equip us and empower us in greater ways in the days ahead in light of how uh, this whole issue is unfolding in our day and time. Please help us. Help us to be faithful. Help us to be loving. And help us to stand strong for your glory and for the good of others. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.